Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, August 22nd. We begin with a look at the increase of gun-related violence in our city. We get some insight into the disturbing trend from Irvin Walker, professor of criminology from the University of Ottawa. Could sugar be robbing you of a good night's sleep? That could be the case, according to a new study. We discussed the research with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. According to a recent poll, Canadians are watching less hockey than we used to. What's the reason behind the decline, or is it a case of viewers and listeners getting their sports fix in a different way these days? We get some insight from Eric Zwieg, freelance writer and sports historian. And finally, it's another edition of Motivational Monday, a chance to get you motivated today and beyond. This time out, we meet Matthew Embry, a man who has been living with with MS for over 25 years. Matt shares his personal story on how he uses diet and exercise to battle the debilitating disease. Calgary has seen a big uptick in gun violence of late, already nearing 2021's total number of shootings with four months yet to go in 2022. To give us some insight into what might be causing this issue, Irvin Waller joins us, the professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Good morning to you, professor. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. What can we attribute this to? Is it just a sign of the times, or is there more? I, it's uh, not that clear uh, what we can assign it to, but uh, once it starts, it tends to go up. So we've seen uh, rises in uh, street handgun violence uh, over the last four or five years in uh, cities like Toronto and Montreal, so I'm not surprised that it's... Uh, going up in um, Calgary. Uh, I, I, I think the real issue is that cities are not addressing the, the risk factors. Um, so young men get a hold of these uh, guns or have access to the guns and they get into a conflict and they use them and then there's uh, possibly a revenge uh, killing and or at least a revenge shooting. And uh, what is so sad to me is that we actually know uh, what to do about it. Um, We know that uh, if the city has a good uh, planning group high up, uh, probably reporting to council, and that using that plan, they have uh, street outreach workers that reach these young men uh, primarily involved in the violence, Uh, and particularly reach them when they have been uh, victims of violence in hospital emergency rooms, then we we know that you can bring this violence um, uh, down. Uh, There are longer-term things, uh, not that long-term, but uh, um, doing programs to help these young men control their anger um, and uh, programs in schools and... uh, summer jobs where you mentor them, all all of those things uh, make a difference. Uh, And uh, Calgary could uh, reduce uh, the uh, the injuries and the deaths and generally the use of these handguns by 50% over the next uh, two or three years, if not sooner. Can we put anything, Professor, on, you know, not only you mentioned some, some great points there and a great path to to maybe easing or, or helping to put the brakes on this problem to a certain extent. Uh, but do we see ebbs and flows? Can we tie this to the economic situation following the pandemic and, of course, maybe energy prices that have happened, for example, Calgary-specific and the economy taking a real hit? I think we can tie it more to coming out of the pandemic. So um, during the uh, pandemic, uh, folk 
were uh, not on the street so much. And since the pandemic has uh, at least gone down, um, the, the folk are more on the street. I, it certainly doesn't help that there aren't jobs for these young men, so they don't see particularly hope of uh, getting a job. Uh, but it, it, it's really important that we don't go on doing the same thing that we've been doing for uh, many years. And what we've been doing for many years is basically expecting a GANS and gun unit uh, with the police to uh, stop this problem. And that's not enough. I, there is some good news. We're nothing like as bad as the United States. And some other good news is that when cities have actually set up a plan uh, and done the things that are evidence-based, and I mentioned those, uh, then you, you you see a significant reduction in 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 in, in the violence. So uh, it's a question of really changing, getting the decision makers, the the mayor and city council to to do what really works and uh, to do it with adequate funding, not just with projects. The federal government gives money for projects to try and counter these issues, but projects come and go, and they're not uh, really the solution. You have to have a, a cross-city strategy uh, with sustained funding for uh, the street workers who make a difference. You have to get... Uh, uh, these street workers into the emergency rooms. You see now in in Ontario, uh, cities are actually required to plan, and uh, requiring to plan doesn't mean to say they have good plans, but Toronto, I, I think, has reached first base for its plan. Uh, they already have uh, a street worker in one of their hospital emergency rooms. They're about to do it in another uh, Winnipeg had uh, a street worker in a in one of their hospitals. Um, it, it, there really are solutions, and um, it, it, it's so frustrating to see cities just going on, yeah, increasing police by whatever percentage, and uh, not doing the things that will save lives, stop injuries, and. Uh, make people feel safer uh, in in those uh, neighborhoods. And Professor, you talked about the feds, the, the federal government obviously focusing on gun control laws recently, the handgun ban particularly of late. Do you think these rules, these laws will impact violent crime, specifically gun-related here in Canada? Uh, no, but I'm not against them. I, I think it's good to try and uh, stop uh, handguns coming into Canada from from the United States. But until you actually deal with the uh, demand by the young men, you're not going to uh, see uh, see a difference. And um, it's, it, it, it's so clear what we need to uh, what we need to to do. Uh, and um, what you see is that when cities have a plan uh, at a high level and that they are uh, focusing on where they need to tackle uh, the risk factors, then you see uh, a real uh, a, a real difference. Very interesting discussion. We appreciate your time, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's Irvin Waller, Professor of Criminology, University of Ottawa.
According to a new study, eating a considerable amount of sugar is linked to a lighter and more disruptive sleep. To talk about this research, we're joined this morning by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Okay, so, uh, you know, Andy and I were talking about this off air. Obviously, we know sugar can make your kids get all buzzy, and it does the same for adults then, and, and this is something that we need to be aware of before bed or all day long. Yes. So number one, it is rare that a late night snack of any sort is good or healthy. Uh, so let's lay that to rest first. Now, there are other things that are more stimulant. So some people are quite stimulated by a high carbohydrate or high sugar uh, kind of load, whether that be in the daytime or at night. So anything that's somewhat stimulant is probably not a good idea at bedtime, whether that be food, whether that be watching a your, your uh, video screen, whether that be caffeine, whether that be alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just one in a long list of things that perhaps are best avoided at bedtime because it gets our brain wired up and, and at a time that it should be going down, not going up. You know, on that topic, when I reached out with you last week, Dr. J, you said, you know what, I, I, that's a great topic because I'm very much digging into sleep right now as far as, you know, your research and your personal reading. So tell us about, you know, why you're, you know, so interested in sleep. So yeah, fascinating. So uh, when I was a high school student, I did science for projects on sleep. Uh, and all through my career, uh, always had a, a really, really uh, good interest in it. There is a book. Now I'm going to sound like a salesman here, mm-hmm. but I have to tell you about a book I've just recently read. It's called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. Why We Sleep. It is absolutely brilliant. It's an example of, there are a lot of world-class researchers or world-class experts um, who, who write uh, research papers and nobody can understand them. This is a guy who wrote a book. The book is on a bestseller list, and it's this absolute brilliant read that takes you through the science, the history, and our, our current thinking about sleep. And I'm going to tell you, after reading that book, if you think you understand sleep a little bit, <laughs> you realize how complicated it really is. Uh, but he makes some brilliant suggestions in that book about how to sleep better and how we're how we're missing the boat on so many things. Is is sugar cumulative then in your body in terms of trying to get to sleep? Or you know, you obviously yes, shouldn't have a snack of anything sweet just before bed. But beyond that, well, it so it depends. Like if you're a diabetic, you can't manage a sugar load. It goes really high and it stays high for a long time. If you're a non-diabetic, when we eat, we get insulin produce so it takes that peak of sugar and brings it down fairly quickly i think the, the the more pure the sugar is the higher the spike and the more potential impact hence why we say we should eat a well-balanced diet if you like carbs it should be mixed with other things the more fiber you have in your diet the harder it is to break down quickly so it takes that really super high peak and just blunts it out so it comes in a little slower it comes in not as high and extends it out a lot longer which is best in the daytime, best in the nighttime. So that's how we best manage our sugar or carbs these days. So we're trying to mix it up a bit and not just have that those pure sugar, you know, pure sugar loads at any time in our in our daytime. Okay, not a, a pure sugar load. You're making it sound like I'm being excessive, Doctor J, and <laughs> hurting my feelings. But is there? We got about thirty seconds. Is there a best time to enjoy a treat throughout the entire day? Is like a big a chocolate time? bar. A big chocolate bar. Well, it probably, you know, something early in the day if okay. you're going to have something. Um, Breakfast. It, and it could get spread out through the day. So, you know, they say eat like a king, <laughs> uh, have lunch or breakfast like a king, lunch uh, like a prince, and 
suffer like a pauper, right? Mm-hmm. So you eat less and less as the day goes on. So maybe that bigger load or that should come earlier in the day so it can be spread out and give you energy for the day. I'm all for a chocolate bar for breakfast. My mom always said <laughs> there the, you go. the best time to eat chocolate was before your feet hit the floor. So <laughs> maybe that's the way to start it. Thanks so much, Dr. J. I always right. appreciate your insight. Okay. You betcha. Thanks. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. This year's World Juniors viewership was very, very low in terms of numbers until the gold medal game got a little bit better. But boy, is it because of the scandal surrounding Hockey Canada? Or have Canadians lost a little bit of interest in hockey? Or perhaps just hockey in August? To talk about all of this, we are joined this morning by Eric Zwieg, who is a writer and sports historian. Good morning to you, Eric. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for thanks for calling me. Uh, okay, so is there, there's got to be a lot to this, right? We've got World Juniors that we're talking specifically. We can go beyond and talk about the NHL as well. But World Juniors, I, I think there's a whole lot at play, isn't there, in terms of people who wanted to watch or didn't want to watch? For sure. I mean, I, I think this one, I mean, I don't even know if you can count the World Juniors in terms of what this survey showed, because, I mean, there were plenty of good reasons not to be watching. I mean, I didn't watch... I, I, I bet I didn't see a minute of it until the gold medal game, and and honestly, I might have, I might not even watch the gold medal game, except that I found myself with with you know without anything to do on a Saturday night, this particular Saturday, and it's it's I think it's the two reasons you mentioned specifically is that it's summertime. I mean, generally, there's better things to do than be inside watching anything on television in the summertime, and and the the controversy that's going on that. I, I, put people off. I mean, it put me off. The, the summer puts me off, too. Um, I think that's the big reason in this one. I, I, I don't know what the ratings were the first couple of games back when it was played in December before it was canceled because of COVID, um, but I, I imagine they were closer to what they normally are, uh, especially then. It was winter, and, and still, I guess, we were mostly being encouraged to stay in, uh, though I'm sure the tickets were, had sold well, mm-hmm. I, I think in this case it's it's summertime and the and the controversy at Hockey Canada. Mm-hmm. But I do think overall it's probably a, a trend, and we can talk about the reasons for that that people in Canada are watching less hockey, or at least it feels like they're watching less hockey. Let's break that down, Eric, because you're quoted in an article, a recent article from the National Post that says just that points to the fact that sports viewership period is down, but more so. If you look at Canada, it lasers in on hockey, which is a say it isn't so. What about hockey night in Canada, Eric? Tell us about this. Uh, well, interesting but that's trend. it, right? I mean, when I was a boy, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm, I'm I'll be 59 at my next birthday, which is coming up fairly soon. Um, when I was a kid uh, in Toronto, so you know, sorry everybody, I was watching that Argo <laughs> game, which, which I haven't watched much. The Stampeders, I was watching from an Argo's perspective and being disappointed, um, but. You know, as a boy in Canada, the Leafs were on twice a week, Wednesday night and Saturday night. And, and you know, Wednesday night was a school night, so I could usually only watch one period and we used to bargain, oh, period in the first intermission, uh, which was, A, that we liked the intermission features, and B, just a chance to stay up later. Uh, and Saturday nights, especially as I got a little older, you know, <laughs> my parents would let me stay up and watch. But it was, I mean, it wasn't quite appointment viewing, but as a sports fan, it, it, you know, you want to watch your team. There were few chances. Now I can watch hockey every night of the week if I choose to, and and several games most nights. And generally, I don't choose to. I mean, there's something. It's funny 
I mean, it's like it's so available. That's why I think I wonder if people really are watching less or it just feels to them like they're watching less because there's so much hockey available. I'm sure, you know, if you count up all the ratings points of all the people watching hockey in a given week, it's still tons. But nobody's watching. No one person maybe is watching as much as they used to. Or it just feels like you don't because, you know, if you watch, I mean, if 82 games are on TV and you watch 40 of them, that's it feels like, yeah, I only, I only paid attention to half this season. Whereas when I was a kid and they were playing 76 games and, and probably 30 of them were on television at all. So, I, I mean, I think, and I, I do think it's also partly that, of course, this isn't what the survey was studying, but, but you know, we're a much more multi-cultural nation than we were. There are people mm-hmm. growing up in Canada who, who didn't grow up on hockey, um, there's, a, you know, we have a basketball team, even though it's Toronto based, it has become a sort of a national team like the Blue Jays have. There's, there's baseball, there's basketball in particular. Um, there's, you know, like soccer has become huge. I mean, I always had a, a following, but it was sort of a, an undercurrent. I mean, I think there's just way more opportunities. Plus there's a million channels. Like when I was watching those games and there were, there were two hockey games a week, we also had like 12 channels to watch. I mean, when a, when a big movie was on, you know, when a James Bond movie was the Sunday night movie on ABC, millions and millions of people watched. I mean, nobody, nobody watches anything on television in those kind of numbers anymore. And yet, I'm sure people are watching television like crazy. It's just that it's, you know, in a 500-channel universe, it's, yeah. it's fragmented. Yeah, interesting for sure. Interesting discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning, Eric. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you, Eric Zwieg, freelance writer and sports historian. You can find more at ericzwieg.com. It's Z-W-E-I-G. Yeah, for me, Sue, I think it is, like one of the reasons I love CFL is because, well, I mean, I, just, it's, I feel like it's my league. I feel like I can get a handle on how many games there are. I mm-hmm. can get a handle on how many teams. When you move into the uh, you know, NHL, NBA, and MLB, it's more difficult. You have to have that time with 30 teams. Um, and because I, for some reason I'm more attracted to basketball, I watch a lot of NBA, NHL. It becomes appointment viewing for me when we get to the playoffs. Uh, me too, because it's a, a more condensed. Yeah, me. me too. I'll watch football through the year, but I really only watch baseball, hockey. You know, mo- for the most part, most sports when it gets to the, I, I just don't time. So yes, time when you get into the playoffs and your team is in it, obviously that oh. changes things dramatically too. Yeah. Over 25 years ago, Matthew Embry was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. That diagnosis changed his outlook, changed his thinking, and changed his life. To share his story and how he chooses to challenge himself every single day, we're joined now by Matt Embry. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for being with us. And, and you know, I, I know because I follow you on social media, you and I have crossed paths many times over the years. And by the way, it's been a while. Um, in your posts, you really... You know, give yourself to being healthy and commit yourself to, to choices. We'll get to those and, and maybe some of the points that motivate you, because I know that whether or not it's, it's MS or another hell that someone's facing, we can all use some inspiration. But before we get there, can you, can you start from the beginning of your journey, Matt, and tell us about the day you were diagnosed with MS? What, how did that unfold for you? Sure. I mean, we're going back a long time now. It's actually been over 27 years since I was first diagnosed, and I was 19 at the time. And, you know, after experiencing some fairly significant neurological symptoms, uh, I had an MRI and then was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And that was, you know, a, a huge change to my life at that point. And, you know, the, the images we have of what, can ha- what MS can do to your body, all those types of things flooded in 
at that time. And it really was the turning point in my life. Um, and, and for me, what I did is I took that as an opportunity to live the most healthiest life I could possibly live. Matt, I follow you on Facebook too, and I've been watching your journey of late and, and just the latest picture that you posted. I mean, you are not a typical MS-looking uh, person, right? Like your body, you're ripped, you're, you're healthy, you're fit. I would imagine it takes a long time, obviously, to get to that point, but there would be a lot of struggles for you suffering from MS to get to this point, correct? Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think I, I post those types of pictures to show what is possible. Mm-hmm. And I also show them for, for the MS community to redefine how we think about what a person with MS can look like after 25 years, after a quarter of a century. Um, and I think to, to be able to achieve you know, the, the physical form that I'm aiming for, it's been a significant amount of discipline um, for the past 25 plus years. On, on a daily basis, and that's why I find social media so great because we I can post every day and, and try to share that journey with other people who may want to get there and and really demonstrate to people it's a daily battle. So many times, Matt, we've we've heard when it comes to anything medical, when it comes to maybe even our yearly physical, that we have to be more active in our own health and be our own health advocates. This, uh, you to, to me, you seem like the picture of that in that it's probably easier, and I don't want to belittle what anybody's going through, easier to say, okay, what kind of a drug can you put me on? What kind of a drug regimen can you put me on? Uh, but I don't want to make the lifestyle choices. Was that, was that a conscious decision for you years ago, saying this is something I am going to have to take on and, and put on my shoulders? Yeah, that's a, that's a major challenge for a lot of people. And I think that you know, so often in life, whether it's you're diagnosed with MS or something else, people want a quick fix. Um, and that's, you know, that, that sometimes can come in the, in, the, in the form of a pill or, you know, maybe one class or something, just like one thing is going to change my life for better. And I think that, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It seems like it's a multifactorial approach. And although, you know, the healthcare system and, and things like the educational system, these systems provide so many good things, there's also an aspect of this life that you have to get out there, find additional solutions advocate for yourself and just get after living as as hard as you possibly can. I mean, you say in one of your posts, you know, we only have so much time, friends, so love and live hard. And, you know, it's true. No matter what you might be going through, MS or anything else, you have to push it sometimes to make sure you get through that day. What's the other alternative, right? Exactly right. And I think that is hopefully my key message. I mean, MS is the flashpoint for my life to change things. But I really hope that people take that story and look at their own lives and then think, okay, what has impacted me that's potentially negative, that I can turn that into a positive situation for me, realize, and I don't want to sound cliche, I have to seize each and every day as though it's a lifetime. And and what am I going to do in that day when I wake up? And how do I go to bed at night feeling great about what I've done and excited about what's to come? Gail, one of our texters, uh, sent a text in, Matt, and this is along the lines of what my next question was going to be, because you are super positive when you've been inside of a storm for, like you say, basically a quarter of a century. Uh, Gail says, Matt, what is your attitude when you wake up in the morning versus the typical, oh, God, it's Monday, I'm tired? What about when you have these plans, Matt, you have, you know, a whole idea of of how you want to live your life and how you want to make a difference for yourself and your health and your family, I I would suspect, um, and you just don't feel like it. What gets you going? Yeah, I mean, that is a daily battle. 
And I try to share that journey with people, too. I mean, I don't want people to think I wake up with a big smile and I'm just vibrant, you know, ball of energy ready to go. I mean, I wake up like anybody else, tired, you know, dread will come in, like that huge checklist of things that have to be achieved will hit me really hard. And I think that I've just come to realize that's how this works for, for me and I think most people. So for me, it, it's the second my eyes open, I'm already trying to engage in something to stop those thoughts and to transition the way I'm thinking from that, you know, that anxiety sometimes or, you know, the fear of what the day is going to bring into a positive thought. And whether that's listening to positive affirmations or changing the music I'm listening to, it's taking action. And that is so important, taking action against these things, realizing that for me, these are normal. Um, and then slowly, incrementally, your mindset starts to shift. And, and that's, a, again, a daily battle. I love that. So a key motivator for you. What else is it that keeps you on track, that keeps you motivated day after day? You've got a busy life. You've got, you know, you've got kids. So how do you deal with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think motivation is a tough one because motivation will come and go. Um, but I think for me, it's a, it's a matter of discipline. One of the top things I tell people is, you know, find your why. And I think that is going to be individual for everybody. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why is this so important? Uh, for me, that top of that pyramid or that, you know, that list of things is my kids. And, you know, if you look at some of the pictures on my social media, especially when I do long runs and things like that, I actually tape a photograph of my kid to my arm like a quarterback has the football plays. Um, it, it's that. It, it's, it's doing these little things, these little visual reminders of, like, why am I doing this? And then transitioning those should into must. And that is so important. When that mind says, I should do this, I try to think, no, I must do this. I must do this today. I must exercise. I must eat well. Matt, uh, just before we let you go, I see that you're, uh, you know, attached and featured prominently on mshope.com. Is that the best website we can give people to, to learn more about you and your journey and, and uh, where you come yeah, from? Yeah, mshope.com is the, uh, it's a free resource of information for people. And I think it, it's about living uh, your best life and trying to achieve optimal health. And I try to provide all the science-based information for people, you know, take what you want, you know, look into it, and, and hopefully the information will be helpful to you. Well, thanks for sharing your journey uh, with or without MS. You've given us some great tips to kick off our Motivational Monday. Thanks so much for being with us, Matt. Thank you for doing this. Have a great day. You too. Appreciate it. Matthew Embry, Living with MS. Again, mshope.com.